The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. Well, my dear friends, for those visiting us um, for the first time and those who have been here before um, but have missed where we are, we are busy studying 1 John. 1 John. Um, It's one of the Apostle John's many letters that he has written in the New Testament. Um, So if you're not used to paging through your Bible, it's close to the back of the New Testament. We are actually, by now, in chapter 4. So you have missed quite a chunk, but not to worry. All of these resources are actually online, through audio, through video, through transcript, uh, what else is there, right? It's just freely available to you, um, and please, we encourage you to make use of this. And the reason the transcript is online is so that you can go back and actually hold us as a church, hold me as, as a, a shepherd and a pastor accountable to the Word of God. That nothing said here is in contradiction with God's Word. So we thank the Lord just how technology has advanced and how we can use that. Fortunately, we know that there's also the negative and the evil that has corrupted um, technology itself. Nonetheless, we come to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and I've titled the section, The Assurance of God's Love. The Assurance of God's Love. Part 1, TM. That's for me. No no trademark, copyright. In fact, this week and the following week will be in this very section. This section takes us from verse 7 up until 21. And, And as you'll see in a moment, we'll look at six truths of God's love, on the assurance of God's love. But, you know, for time's sake, for your sanity and sanctification... We'll only handle three this morning. Okay? Amen? Are you, are you good with that? So we can make it in time for lunch this morning. Now I do want to add, First John, as many of you know, and if you're here for the first time, is a series full of Christian assurances. If you don't know what the word assurance means, it means um, to be aware of, to have the knowledge of something, whether it's true or false. Okay? And this morning we get to what I think is the pinnacle of John's letter. I would think this is the hype. This is what we've been working towards. Because John now points us to God's love that's put on display. As we get here, I know that in this room we have various definitions of love, isn't it? I would hope we have the same definition, but that's not guaranteed. So, love, hmm, it has been said, has many faces. People see it in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Listen to how children answer this question. The question posed to these young ones was, What does love mean? Alright, sit back and listen to this. 
A six-year-old girl was asked, what does love mean? She said, it's when you go out to eat and give someone most of your chips without making them give you any of theirs. A four-year-old expressed, sorry, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Seven-year-old boy said, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. Five-year-old said that love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Really, that five-year-old. Four-year-old girl said, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. It's quite cute, hey? It's really cute getting a, a child's perspective on love. And I believe it's so sincere. It really is so sincere. That's why I didn't ask any adults. Now, <laughs> I think it's better for us to get God's perspective on love. Amen? Not a cute, cuddly, waddly definition of love, but a true definition of what love is. And there are several places in Scripture where God gives us His thoughts on love. Have you ever read Song of Solomon? Uh, Song of Songs? Specifically chapter 8 from verse 5 through 14. Perhaps 1 Corinthians 13. How about 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21? See, our text is unique because John takes us to the very origin and source of love. God Himself. In fact, love is God's very nature. And, and acting in love is essential to God's character. Listen, even the world knows this. The world is quick to say, God is love. He's loving. But I think they are also sincerely deceived in that definition. See, how do we know that love is God's very nature? How do we know that God acts in love because it's part of His essential character? I'll give you a hint. It's made of wood. The cross. The cross is how we know that God is love. The cross. Not the church. Not us being gathered. The cross. You see, the cross is an everlasting monument to the truth that our God is love. No one can take that down. No one can rip that monument off and say, it's not part of our history. It might not be part of your history, but it's part of mine. It's part of my heritage. It is part of who I am as a believer. The cross. So, in our salvation, have you ever doubted the love of God? Have you ever felt that God isn't loving you right now? Yeah? I want to comfort you this morning by saying, 
First John chapter 4 from verse 7 to 21 gives us six truths to assure us of God's love. Six. That's amazing. Yeah? Good. But we're only going to look at three this morning, as I said. And I want to read for us from verse 7. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Amen? Just this portion. Now firstly, the first truth we get to deal with is that love is from God. Look at verse 7, just one more time. Verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's pretty simple. That's pretty clear. I hope you would agree. So I want to begin by first establishing that unbelievers can love. Unbelievers can love. Sadly, sometimes unbelievers love better than we as Christians love. You say, but how can an unbeliever love? Are we all made in the image of God? Yes, not a trick question. We are. Genesis 1, 26, 27. God created man. How did He create him? In His image. In His likeness. Whether we're believers or not, we're made in the image of God. We bear that image. So, because we're all made in this image... Despite our depravity and our sinfulness, all people will reflect or give reflections of the one whose image they bear. So unbelievers can be loving. Unbelievers can love. And to add to this, our culture of, of, of love is often misunderstood. Because love is understood in selfish sexual terms that's how the world displays love it's about me and what I want and what I need if you love me then you will let me go what listen someone ever had to say that to me I think you need to run I don't think I need to let you go I think you need to run Love pursues. Love engages. But our culture says, no, no, love is selfish. Love is physical. It is sexual. Love is natural, right? That's misguided. One commentator said this, human love, however noble and however 
highly motivated falls short if it refuses to include the Father and Son as supreme objects of its affection. I know that's a mouthful, but what this essentially says is love falls short unless this love is driven by the Father and the Son. Otherwise, it's not true love. This kind of false love fails to honor the great commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor. So I want to establish this first truth by saying, loving others gives us the evidence that we belong to God. Loving others is what gives us assurance that we have been born again. Listen, it's only the Christian energized by the Holy Spirit who can love the unloving. Amen? I want to continue. I want to ask this question, why are we to love one another? And don't say because the Bible says so. Why does the Bible say so? John gives us the first reason. John says we love one another because love is from God. That's reason number one. Love always has God as its source. And whoever loves with this God kind of love give evidence, they give testimony, they give witness that they have been born of God. You see, when, we, when we're saved, when we are born again, our selfish hearts are removed, they're replaced. Ezekiel says God takes the heart of stone and removes it and gives us a heart of flesh. This heart of flesh becomes one with God's life. With God's love. John Piper puts it well. He says, Love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what He is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. And so John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of divine nature becomes part of who you are. When you're saved, you become not little gods. Okay? You don't become God when you're saved. You become God's possession when you're saved. And because love is His character, love is His nature, what happens to you? You become loving. You become loving. I want to continue by saying it's part of who you are. Because you rest in this which is from God. In addition, loving others also gives evidence or testimony or witness that we also know God. To have knowledge of God. But I love the Greek. The Greek uses the word genosko. 
It means an intimate knowledge. It doesn't mean just you know it because you've read it. You know it because you've studied it. You've meditated on it. You've seen it. Are you with me? It's an intimate knowledge. So not only do those who love with a God-like love give evidence that we are of God, but we also demonstrate that we love God and are from the love of God. In what? In that we know God. We know His character. We know what He is like. We know what pleases Him. We know what honors Him. I think a lot of us know a lot about God. But I also think a lot of us need to get to know God. And not more about Him, but know Him. Listen to verse 8. I want to summarize it for us. I'll read it and summarize it. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, if your life is not characterized by a God-like love, a love that cares for its enemies, then you don't know God. You don't genosko God. You have not experienced Him intimately. Are you with me? Then we can say, you're not born again. You're not saved. Oh, but, but, but I said a prayer. I went to youth camp. Or I wrote it on a piece of paper. You could have done those things. And it still means nothing. Because you have not intimately known Him. You've not truly given your life to Him. If God's nature is love... Listen to this. God is love does not equal love is God. Say it again. God is love does not equal love is God. It's not the same equation. Love does not define God. God defines love. So John's train of thought goes like this. Number one, God is love. Number two, those who have been born of God and know God are His children. Number three, God's children have God's nature. Number four, and God's children therefore will love. Are you with me? That's the equation. So love's source is in God. And as we love like God loves... We give evidence, we give testimony that we are connected to God. We demonstrate this life of love in the knowledge of God. Brings us to a second truth that gives us this assurance that, that God's love is for me and that I love with God's love. And that is, love is revealed in Jesus. This is our example, right? And it's quite a high standard. Love is revealed in Jesus. Verse 9. In this love, or in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. Hang on to that word, propitiation. We'll come back to it. I've explained it before. I ask a question again. How do we know that we are loved and will always be loved by God? Listen, I'm I'm not expecting you to raise your hands. But who in this room has ever thought that they have fallen outside of God's love? In other words, that I'm saved, I'm I'm baptized, I'm a believer. And you go through trials, you go through hardship, you go through heartache. And you go, God doesn't love me anymore. I must have done something. Because God doesn't love me. And then you come to me and you say, Pastor, I I don't think God loves me anymore. What did you do? Well, I did this thing. But that thing doesn't disqualify God's love. How do you know? John tells us how we know. See, when God loves us, He doesn't stop loving us. And His love for us doesn't change or fall away or, you know, you've upset Him so much by now. He doesn't love you. Side note, parents. I know we have a a lot of young parents and I praise the Lord for your lives and your eagerness to to raise children um, in a God-fearing setting. But man, there's a generation of parents that threaten their kids with love. You do that. I'm going to stop loving you. Stop feeding you. Stop this. Stop that. What? That's why the world is so misguided by love. It's used as a weapon. Anyway, that was just a bonus. You see, when John introduces verse 9, he's telling us what this love looks like when it's applied. God sends His Son. Where does He send the Son from? Jesus Christ. Where does He come from? From heaven, right? He sends Him from heaven. He sends Him from the place where He has eternally existed. He was never created. He was. When God says, I am, Jesus says, I am. God is, or Jesus is, I am. He was with the Father in loving communion with the Holy Spirit. The triune God. Existing in perfection. God's not lonely. Don't think that the existence of creation is because God was bored or alone and therefore He made us. The prophet Isaiah says, we were created for His glory. In other words, He made us to reveal His glory, to be a reflecting image of His glory. Not because He was alone. Because he was bored, he was in perfect communion in himself, the triune God. Therefore, when we sing the hymn, And Can It Be?, we say, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. How? How does the eternal God, who's always existed, die? I'll tell you how he dies. God sends him 
into enemy territory. He sends him into a world of sinners on a search and rescue mission. Jesus comes looking for us even when we're not looking for him. That's Romans for you. So why did he come? Why does Jesus come? Jesus comes so that we might live through him. Are you with me? Without Jesus, there's no salvation. Without Jesus, there's no eternal life. There's nothing that makes you new. So Jesus sends him. And scripture says we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sin. And so God sends his world, his son into a world of rebellion. And what does this world do? It kills his son. Listen, I don't think I'm going to be popular. But we kill Jesus. To say, but you know, 2,000 years ago, they didn't know any better. I'm telling you. Without Christ's love, we would be chanting at Golgotha. But thank the Lord for His mercy. He rescues us. In that while we, what does Paul say? His enemy, He saves us. That's love. That's the, the word manifest means to reveal, to show off. God shows off His love in Jesus. That despite the world hating him, we still get to see his love. So the question is, what does it mean to live through Jesus? It means to be born of him. To be born of God. To know God. It means to experience his love and to share that love with others. It means to enjoy fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. John has told us that it means to walk in the light. It means to enjoy fellowship with one another. It means to confess and receive the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to live through Jesus. You see, and it's only possible because God took the initiative to love us. Does He send an angel? To save us? Because he does that in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? But he doesn't do that again. He doesn't do that for us. He sends his only begotten, not created, only begotten son. Does he send his son just to live? sends his son to die does he send his son to just die an ordinary death of heart failure no he sends his son to die the death of a savior in our place to die on behalf of our punishment that's propitiation remember that word Propitiation, you say, what's propitiation? That's what it means. It means that Jesus died in our place, taking our punishment 
so that the wrath of God is taken care of. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so God sends the Son to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the word propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God through an offering. Do that again. To turn away the wrath of God with an offering. That's propitiation. It means that in Christ, God made Himself satisfied. That's the atonement. We say that God offered Himself in His Son. That's the triune God. Don't think sending Jesus takes nothing away from the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Wow. Listen, propitiation is more than a fancy word. It means atoning sacrifice. And the fact that God provides satisfaction in Himself teaches us so much about Him. It teaches us that God personally hates sin. It teaches us that propitiation, or that in propitiation, the seriousness of sin is taken care of. It teaches us that the greatness of God's love is what provides the offering to turn away His wrath. Now that is amazing. That is love revealed. And it's revealed through a person. And that person sacrificing himself. It's ref- it tells us that the assurance of God's love is seen through what Christ has done and is enabled or enables us to experience the same love. Brings us to a third point or a third truth. Before I move into this, I want to just for a moment go to the thief on the cross. Did that thief on the cross have any good in him? Any measure of good for God to save him or justify him? Nothing. Nothing. But he saw something. He saw something we see. Just as we see it through the Holy Spirit. He recognized the love of God in the Son. I think he could hear Jesus. Obviously, because they could communicate, right? He heard Jesus pray. He saw Jesus not retaliate. He saw Jesus with not a single speckle of revenge in his eyes on the cross. He saw that. And I think, what a sight. He called upon Jesus. What did Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That is justification. In fact, that is propitiation. Even though he physically died, he didn't die for his sin. 
Christ died for his sin. It brings us to a third point from verse 11 and 12. Love is the Christian duty. Verse 11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Man, I love this. Basically says, if we love one another, we put the love of God on display. Jesus revealed this love, right? He came and He initially revealed the measure of this love, the fulfillment of this love, the complete perfection of this love. But how do we continue to see this love? Through the Christian. Through you and I. John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said this, By this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Powerful. Powerful. And yet I'm sad to report that Christians are not often known for their love for others. Man, that's so discouraging. Sometimes the criticisms are unjust. I mean, the world tells lies of the Christian, lies of our Savior, lies of the true God. But unfortunately, other times, when the world accuses us for not being loving, we are guilty as charged. We are. Recent research by um, Lyons and, and Kinnaman reveals that Christians are often seen by the lost as hyper-political, out of touch, pushy in our beliefs, and arrogant. Listen, as I said, sometimes the criticisms are unjust. Further research suggests that we are particularly viewed by young Americans um, who don't attend church as anti-homosexual, as judgmental, as hypocritical, and insensitive to others. I can tell you that's similar stats to anyone in South Africa. You ask people, hey, why don't you go to church? Full of hypocrites. Yeah, but why don't you come? Because they just judge us. Just are unloving towards us. Don't care about us. Jesus said that we have to have love for others. Because that's how our, our love as disciples is displayed. John 13, 35. Jesus says to love our enemy and to pray for those who hate us. And those who would harm us. Matthew 5, 45. The great and challenging application is that we must go out to those who refuse to listen to us. We must go out to those who look different than us, who choose to not love us in return. We must share a gospel that people don't want to hear. We must love those who may hate us or even want to kill us. 
That's the Great Commission. Listen, we're connected to Jesus. How? Through salvation. Through the new birth. Therefore, here it is, we must go and live like Jesus among our friends and among our enemies. When we were in darkness, who saved us? God. He brought us into the light. When we were dead, what happened? God sent His life. He sent life through His Son. When we were in despair, God sent us His love. Friends, therefore it's now our duty to continually reach out to those in darkness, those in sin, those who hate us, those who want to murder us. Man, look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. John 17, 26. Jesus also says, I made your name known to them and will make it known. So the love you have, or the love you have loved me with, may be in them and I in them. That was Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer. Father, the way you loved me, I have loved them. Therefore, let my love now be in them so that they can love one another. If we want to apply this truth, we need to understand what it says when we are truly children of God. If we're truly children of God, then we will be loving one another. Not we will love one another. We will be loving one another. I want to close with verse 12. It says, No one has ever seen God. Let's just stop right there. The word seen is from the Greek that suggests the word theater. That's where we get the word theater, right? So when it says, um, No one has seen God, it, it implies that we haven't carefully observed or had the opportunity to closely examine Him. John says, No one has seen God up close and personal in His unveiled glory. You haven't seen Him. To do so means you would die. It's okay. What about in the Old Testament? Moses on Mount Sinai. Isaiah in the temple. They only saw a glimpse which were visions or revelations of God. They could see this glory and it was just a glimpse. And guess what? They could barely handle it. If they saw any more of God, they would be vaporized. Because that's just... The sinner cannot handle this beauty, this glory. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus pulls back His veil, when Jesus reveals His glory, and the three were up there with Him, it was just a glimpse. Therefore, John's 
argument takes a beautiful turn. He says, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. One commentator said this, the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. That's John's argument. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, people see God. And that's amazing. That's number one, a privilege. Number two, a responsibility. John makes this point by stating, when we love one another, it's number one, proof that we or that God dwells within us, lives within us. And number two, it tells us his love for us is perfected. Not being perfected, it is perfected. See, if God is the source of love, he's also its maintenance. He's also, it's also the perfection. Because it begins and ends with God. God didn't just give us love. Just, here's, here's love. No, no, He gave us the example of love. He made the way for love. And so He, in our salvation, gives us the capacity to love. The example to love. The responsibility to love. And that's how we prove that we belong to God. That's our assurance. You say, I really struggle to love so and so and so. That's fine, you can struggle to love so and so. But don't say you can't love so and so. Because God made you to love so and so. Yeah, but they, I don't know man. They're horrible. They're like an enemy to me. Yeah, brilliant. God said, love your enemies. Love them. How do I do that? When they're hungry, feed them. When they're thirsty, give them drink. You know what's the most beautiful of that all? When you give your enemy the gospel and your enemy becomes your brother. Huh? A fellow Christian. I've seen that. I've seen two people really just hate each other. One a believer and an unbeliever. No form of counsel. And this unbelieving person, just the love of God overwhelms them. And they repent and they become believers. And these two who are at each other's throat become inseparable. Just such loving people towards each other. Listen, that's how you express God's sacrificial love to others. Be willing to talk about it. Be willing to share it. Be willing to express it. And when the world hates you for it, don't think, ah, it's just the world. Keep in mind, the world is watching. And you're a witness to that love. Love then becomes the center of our Christian experience. Are you with me? So we only saw three truths this morning. That love is from God. 
Love is revealed through Christ. And love is our duty. It's your and our responsibility. It's our privilege to live out these truths. Let's give thanks. Our Savior, we thank you that you have first loved us. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for a life of 33 years lived with no ministry, of patience, of being tempted and yet not giving in to temptation. Then we see your ministry of three years faithfully revealing your word, faithfully revealing your love, and finally faithfully executing your sacrifice. And now as we stand in your goodness, as we stand in your righteousness, as we stand just before the Father, I pray that you would continually enable us to be the example of your love to those around us. To be faithful. To be the first to want to serve. To be the first to want to encourage. I believe, Lord, that's how we will faithfully embody your love. We give thanks in your name. Amen.